My name is William Corliss and this is the Workplace Podcast. Brought to you in association with Yellowwood, providers of executive coaching, corporate training and facilitation. Your external learning and development partner. Each week we focus on a different aspect of the workplace. We hear from guest speakers who will be subject matter experts, who I believe are incredibly talented at what they do. These experts will give you a different perspective and insight to work life, with the aim of empowering you to take a different path to success in all aspects of work life. These perspectives will include career and personal success, leadership, high performance teams, and creating a better work life culture in your organization. Yellowwood, take a different path to success with your career, team, and organization. Welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Our guest today is David Robert Grimes. David is a physicist, cancer researcher and author. His work encompasses everything from how tumours use oxygen to the impact of disinformation and conspiracy theory on public understanding. He has a strong focus on public understanding of science and medicine, contributing to BBC, RTE, The New York Times, The Guardian, Scientific American, The Irish Times and PBS. He has received the 2014 Maddox Prize and his first book, The Irrational Ape, Why We Fall for Disinformation, Conspiracy Theory and Propaganda is out now from Simon & Schuster UK. I want to welcome David Robert Grimes. David, how are you? I'm great, William. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. And our topic today is critical thinking and how that's really important in the workplace. So again, it is everywhere the need for critical thinking. It's often cited as one of the ways to future-proof your career, uh, but also it's a key skill for leadership and making st- strategic decisions, which are very much a play now. So again, can you describe what is critical thinking to us? Yeah, I can, I can take a, an educated stab at it. So the idea behind critical thinking is to analyze and kind of probe decisions before you necessarily jump into them or before you accept information to, to, to just check it a little bit first. And that sounds like, oh, we, we all do that all the time. But I think what we've learned during the pandemic is that we don't do that all the time. What we tend to do as humans is we rely on quick heuristics. We hear something, we make a quick assumption. We're, we're more concerned sometimes with speed than veracity. Uh, so this kind of fixation with velocity over veracity isn't always great. What critical thinking would ask us to do is to, before we accept things or before we move in a certain direction, to weigh up all the available evidence and contrast it to try and arrive at better decisions. And I think certainly in business, that that is something that everyone wants to to do you want to get to the place where you have the optimum output and unless you use critical analytical thought you're never going to get there because you're going to be fooled by bad statistics or pulled off course by ropey logic and critical thinking is all about avoiding that so i I think it's certainly applicable in in all avenues of life yeah when i was reading your book which is a brilliant book i must say uh, the irrational um a brilliant brilliant book right why we fall for disinformation conspiracy theory and propaganda you know i think we're we notice this happens on social media but how does it happen in the workplace well it it, it, it's one of the most common places in the workplace and i mean obviously um it's i I can't speak for everyone's but i can tell you a little bit what i've seen it's very easy to fall victim to groupthink. that's probably the the classic thing so there's a hierarchy in most workplaces and you have someone who maybe is strong of opinion, someone who might be in a senior leadership role. And so we all have these intrinsic biases. And one of the things that tends to happen with humans, which we most of our listeners are humans, and I, I presume I am as well, and you definitely are, William, we're all good. But the thing about that is it's very easy to fall in these kind of little routines because, say, someone has a strong force of personality or a strong vision, that, that infects it. And then it's very hard for someone, let's say, the emperor's not wearing any clothes. Like these kind of biases happen all the time and they bring people towards terrible decisions. You've seen that in, in, everyone can think of examples in businesses where that has happened. Someone has become wedded to an idea that actually if someone had critically analyzed it a bit more, they mightn't have gone that direction with it at all. 
So I think that with the, the way it happens in business, most often it manifests as a personality or um, a vision-based thing where people don't probe it strongly enough because of that hierarchy or because of that force of personality. So that happens quite a bit as well. Also, making decisions on um, incomplete evidence. Now, we always have incomplete evidence, but there are ways and means of making better decisions and not being led astray. And when we fail to do that, when we kind of follow things unthinkingly, we often end up at suboptimum places, terrible decisions, and maybe business losses. So it, it definitely factors in everywhere a little bit. So is, is, is there a place then there for holding people really to account or challenging people where you get their information from? Because people are going to go, oh, why are you giving me a hard time in <laughs> the workplace? Maybe, you know, is it that you don't trust information or you're trying to challenge the thought process behind the decision making what might that look like you're process? trying to do both actually you've, you've hit the nail on the head there so firstly checking your sources now i was writing a piece about this recently for for an academic journal but i realize how applicable it is to human life we've been talking about in academia the concept of information hygiene right mm -hmm. and that is we during the pandemic i hate to keep referring back to it but it's currently ongoing and everyone has it as a mental reference point but, but during, during the pandemic, we've all learned the importance of physical hygiene, that we yeah. socially distance, that we, that we wear PPE when we need to, all that kind of stuff, right? But what people forget is information is every bit as infectious, and sometimes it's every bit as malignant, right? You have a little bit of information that's either uh, incorrect or is, is, is scurrilous or whatever else, or, 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 is mis, or is just misguiding you because it's, it's incorrect. And there is a tendency because we don't accept information passively. There's this kind of um, misconception about human psychology that we come across uh, a bit of information and we dispassionately just look at it. We don't do that. If it fits into one of our mental indexes, if it, if it chimes with our prejudices, if it chimes with our preconceptions, we are far more likely to embrace that bit of information or gossip or whatever else it is, right? Yeah. And, and information hygiene would have as actually kind of wearing protective equipment, if you will, when you come across information. Because I would argue information itself is infectious. If you get infected by a bad idea, you're far more likely to infect someone else with it or for it to do you harm, to bring the pathogenic analogy back into it. So the first step of the process is checking your sources. So when people come to you with information or idea or even a statistic or something, you go, that's cool. Um, now tell me before I accept that, before I take that into my, my mental canon, where did you get that from? And is that in context? The second part of that question, is that in context, is very, very important. One of the examples I do when I, when I give talks to people, I love doing uh, a little bit of a survey. I have to go to a segue with this, sorry, but I will for a second. I love that. Uh, so the survey I do is, all right, there's a chemical that is called dihydrogen monoxide. We find it in food supply. We find it in everything. It's, it's, in the, it's even in the human body in huge concentrations. This chemical, it is highly toxic in high concentrations. It kills hundreds of thousands of people a year. We find it in nuclear waste. We find it in tumors. It destroys the environment, erodes through everything. And you give all these things, and then you have a little like vote. Who here thinks that we should ban this? Because it's in our food. Yeah. And oftentimes people say, I, 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 absolutely. And then I point out to them that dihydrogen monoxide is H2O, is water. Now, nothing I've said is wrong. Water does kill hundreds of thousands of people a year. Water is present in tumors and nuclear waste and, and destroys the environment in large concentrations. But what I've done is I've given you that information in the wrong context. I have framed that information in a way designed to mislead you. And that is the famous dihydrogen monoxide hoax that oftentimes uh, young students get politicians to sign around the world. It's happened a few times. The New Zealand legislature debated it once because some students put it in as a prank. But what to me, the reason that's beautiful is it highlights information is not neutral. Information, the, what you need to ask first is, okay, you've told me this. Tell me the full context of that information because you can't make a decision. I mean, if we banned water, we'd be in a pretty bad way. So this is why you have to make uh, decisions on the totality of information in context and not just little bits, because even true little nuggets can be misleading on their own. The second part of it, like you point out, is how we parse information and, and things once we have them. 
So I think the biggest problem with, with us as humans is that we have our own little biases. We do yeah. really love to latch on to information that uh, appeals to us. We, we buy newspapers that chime with our political agenda. We, we consume media, particularly in the social media era, that is basically force-feeding us stuff we already kind of agree with. And there's a tendency for us to get into echo chambers and to make decisions on, on that basis, which are not necessarily objective or, or, or well thought out. There's also a tendency uh, for information to get a little bit manipulated in decision-making to get manipulated as well. Because if you have a little bit of a bias, the old joke is if you have um, a hammer, everything looks suspiciously like a nail. And there's the mental analog to that as well. So I think that, as you point out, it's things of sources and how you analyze information once you have it. And both of those are critical to any endeavor. But it's unfortunately where we tend to fall down. I'm, I'm not sure where we fall down more, but we certainly fall down on both. I think that's some excellent points that you, you make there. And you kind of reminded me of a testimony I got yesterday from a coaching client, you know, that I actually challenged someone on their personal narrative. They had a, a bias towards like all businesses bad or big businesses bad, where again, I was, you know, challenging back to say, well, where does that come from? And where's the evidence and how can you influence that? And I think this is the thing we need to start thinking about. What are our biases? And it, it, it's, look, it is not comfortable or, or pleasant to think about it. I mean, but one of the things you, 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 you it's an exercise in, in, in clever thought. You have to sometimes sit there and kind of sit with your own decisions, go, why did I immediately jump to that decision? Or why do I really want this to be true? One of the easy things it is to, is to see it in reverse. It's very easy for us to look at someone else and go, that's obviously biased. You're making a biased decision. It's much harder to turn that lens inward and go, now, hang on. Do I just want this to be true? And I, I find with information, when someone sends me something, uh, and if it already kind of chimes with, with my, my beliefs or my preconceptions, I'm, I'm very tempted to go, yeah, I'm going to share that. I'm going uh, to, to amplify that narrative. But now what I do a lot more is I go, I really want that to be true. I'm going to treat that with twice the level of suspicion that I would have treated if it was something I didn't want to be true because I have to make sure that I'm right. And something uh, before we started recording, we were chatting about it. It's absolutely true. I'll bring it up if you, if you don't mind. There's, this, there's the, old, this, the old adage that the statistics do tell us that the vast majority of us share things on social media that we maybe haven't read. We maybe see the headline and the headline chimes with something we believe. There's two reasons we share things, by the way, um, on social media anyway. We either share them because they chime with our, our notions and again, that's the problem I'm saying there. We have to be very careful not to do that or because they outrage and disgust us. Now, okay. that sounds very strange, but, but the biggest reliable predictor of whether something goes viral online or not is if it induces anger, disgust, or outrage. And that is something we have to be very aware of because that's, that's, that's the, the weaponization of very human traits. We have um, a tendency to fall towards anecdote and vivid anecdotes that inspire a very guttural, uh, visceral reaction in us tend to get shared an awful lot more. So we have to be aware in business or in real life that if someone is telling us something or showing us something that is inducing an emotional reaction, that's making us really angry, that's when we have to be super critical with our sources and go, all right, now I need that context and I need to check that information and we see that with disinformation. Uh, I spent a lot of time doing analysis of that. We look at disinformation online and propaganda, and that is how propaganda and disinformation is shaped. And it's shaped like that in business too. If someone wants to, uh, to, to engender bad feeling about something, if they can induce a sense of outrage, they can shut down your critical faculties. And that can lead you to be taken advantage of by competitors, by demagogues, by people with their own agendas. So it's just very wary i always say if, if you feel something is emotionally inducing a reaction weirdly enough instead of going with that sometimes it's better to stop it for a second put it on ice and go information hygiene this is making me angry i need to check whether this is a ploy or out of context or you know because we do have these human tendencies to fall towards that I think this is a brilliant point then you're making it because this under gives us an understanding of those social media pylons 
you know, where people just jump on something that outraged there. So people are taking advantage of that to get clicks or likes or, you know, to be subversive in some way to influence people, to, you know, like Brexit or, the, you know, the, the truther movement in the Capitol Hill attacks or, you know, and, and stuff with, you know, vaccines. Oh, yeah. We take AstraZeneca or not. Do vaccinations cause, you know, autism, all these various different things. So can you tell me a little bit more about that? Because I'm just curious how these social media ills are is seeping into the workplace. Yeah, and they, they very much are. Well, the first thing that social media does terribly or well, it's well, it does well for the companies who uh, who who capitalize off the the outrage that's generated. It doesn't necessarily do well for us as a society. But what they're very good is they're t very good at taking the spectrum of opinion, which is a spectrum, and condensing it into a bimodal distribution. And to take the, the nerd talk out of that, they're very, very good at binarizing and polarizing discussion. Now, if you went to the pub with a rake of your friends, they'd all have varying opinions on things and you could have pleasant discussion. You know, oh, you think that? I think this. That's not what happens online. Anyone who's delved into the online world will find that it tends to disintegrate into two polar opposite opinions with no overlap screaming at each other, right? And if you take a step back, both of them are usually very flawed positions, but they've now married themselves to this hill to die on, and you're, you're watching this going, this is not conducive to, to good public discourse. I would argue, firstly, that social media has made... I would say debate in very loose terms. Uh, we, we've now seen that as the arbiter of truth. It is not. Discussion always has been. Like the point is, you're always dealing with incomplete information. Your opinions are always not entirely informed. No matter how informed you are, there's always more you could learn. But if you adopt a position and become uh, aggressive about it and have to defend it, it makes it very difficult for you to accept new information that would help you update your position. Yeah, and it looks like a betrayal. You become emotionally invested in it. Social media has made that a blood sport. It has made it very much. Uh, when you talk about pylons, though, you did, you did something is interesting about that too. I think um, the issue with pylons is that people often want to be seen as morally virtuous or, or you know, sanctimonious in some way, and it's very easy to find someone who's an alleged transgressor. Or, you know, I, I say alleged because oftentimes the transgressions are very relative or, or sometimes non-existent, but the person has decided, you know, they've been, they've been singled out for being a, a figure of hate. And yeah. you often know the stuff that's put against them is, is incredible. And I suspect part of the reason for that is this uh, drive of sanctum. Everything you do online is amplified. All your actions, uh, you know, are, are supposed to give a perception of you. So if you are condemning in the strongest possible terms some bad person, by implication, you're trying to make yourself out to be a morally virtuous person. Now, that itself is a logical fallacy. That's not just a, a rhetorical fallacy. It doesn't follow. You can condemn the heck out of someone, but that doesn't make you a better person. However, the implication is being played with there to, to do, and people do it. They think, uh, and there's a shared catharsis of, of, of online anger. People love being angry. And if you are given your figure for two-minute hate, to, to misquote Orwell, um, and that's the, the enemy of the day, well, you get to vent at them and you feel, oh, well, I didn't do anything wrong. I got to be nasty, but I was being nasty to a nasty person. And um, it can, it's very easy to get suckered into that way of thinking. It's still negative. It's still a net detrimental. It's still a bad thing. But somehow it can be sold as being virtuous. And social media is particularly good at doing that because your actions are, you know, they're on display. It's it's yeah. not realistic anyway. But yeah, there's a, there's there are so many things. I mean, for in my own academic research, the spread of disinformation online has been on. We've always had disinformation, which is deliberate falsehood. But the social media revolution has really allowed that to spread in ways that um, only the most cynical of us could have foreseen. Now, I will say it was foreseen. In the early days, um, I, I wouldn't ever dare assume your age, William, but you, 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 I, I remember the early days of the internet uh, when already the publicly accessible internet in, in the late 1990s, when everyone was so optimistic. But there was a choir of voices, some of whom were in, uh, I 
think it was MIT. Uh, I think I wrote about them in the book a little bit. And they had an alternative take. They were like, yeah, it could be great. We could go online and we could learn a lot about each other's opinions, which is what everyone thought was going to happen. Uh, And they said, or we could all go online, find communities of people that just echo back to us what we already believe and become more and more uh, binarized, more and more polarized and less and less amenable to solutions. And they called this process cyber balkanization, reflecting the fractured state of the Balkans. And I often think that they were the ones who had the most precedent insight into how humans act, because I suspect that's exactly what we've done, that we've created walled gardens where we echo ever and ever stronger versions of our own opinions. That's not great. We've become our own yes men. And uh, I think to our collective detriment. And it feels like history is repeating itself. So it's this new version of media propaganda, you know? So again, you know, in terms of that, it happened in the thirties and the forties, you know, across Europe. And this is why we had, you know, uh, the rise of, you know, um, Hitler and all that, because just taking advantage um, of, of people's economic plights. Absolutely. And, and it, 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 it basically primes us as well to be very reactionary. I think about social media is it rewards us for reacting rather than reflecting. No mm-hmm. one gets social media kudos for saying, I'm taking a considered nuance on this and I'm going to take a few days because whatever you're meant to react to is no one cares a few days later. They're on to the new outrage. Uh, but there's an interesting parallel in history as well. So I always say that critical thinking is the only shield we have against people that would manipulate us that way. People demagogues and charlatans and i spent a lot of my time dealing with snake oil salesmen and uh as a primarily a cancer researcher and a lot of my time is spent dealing with patients who have been exposed to disinformation and maybe are considering not getting traditional treat or or not getting conventional treatment or going for something that i i know on intellectual level is going to do them harm but they've been sold on an emotional level is going to do them you know, it's going to be miraculous. They're going to, they're going to do great on it. So there, there, there is that. But you can look at what social media has done in one way. And to go back to your, your reference about history repeating itself. So one of the most classic examples of disinformation that I always cite was a Soviet operation called Operation Infectum in, um, in 1983, 1984. And this was part of a Soviet doctrine of active measures. Active measures was the idea that any propaganda they put out there could damage the United States. And around the early 1980s, AIDS became a thing that we were all uh, aware of. It was originally called GRID, Gay-Related Immunodeficiency, and then it was renamed AIDS, the the, the current name. Um, And the Soviets saw this as a great opportunity. And what they did at the time is they started spreading a rumor that AIDS was a man-made disease created by the Americans to severely harm the black and gay communities. And because the black and gay communities had been so harshly hit by HIV AIDS, and because the Reagan administration had been, frankly, a little bit dismissive of their plights and concerns, that's that's an understatement to say a little bit, quite dismissive, um, this this rumor designed to emotionally invigorate appealed to them. To this day, 50% of African-Americans are sympathetic towards that narrative. Now, that narrative backfired horrifically for the, uh, for the Soviets because AIDS was very, very real. And about two years later, it came to Russia in a huge way. The Russians needed the help of American virologists, but the propaganda, which the Americans had picked up, uh, was causing issues with that. So there was a back-channel communication done between Gorbachev and, and Reagan who said, we will send a virologist to help you if you give it a rest with the propaganda. And the Soviets did in 1986, I think they they called off that campaign, but that narrative still exists today. Once you start a rumor, it's very hard to stop the rumor. Uh, you can see that that actually manifested in the South African, um, when South Africa was, was, was I forgot the exact government, it's Mbeki's hey, it government. Zuma, Zuma Mbeki, Zuma. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. It's funny, the minute you mentioned that, I was thinking of Jacob Zuma. I, I have a little bit on the book as well, but the problem is that narrative got bought in uh, by that government and they they basically shunned antiretroviral treatment for HIV they recommended garlic and beetroot and it led to 343,000 preventable deaths because 
you know, it, it's it's the problem with falsehoods is once you've let a cat out of a bag, even if it's a phantom cat, it's kind of impossible to put it back in. The reason why that chimes at me now is to do that back in the 80s, the Soviets had to buy a newspaper in India. They had to buy journalists in America. It was very expensive, very time consuming. They still did it all the time, but getting this disinformation out there took a lot of effort. Now, it takes no effort whatsoever. Anyone can go online and say anything they want. Um, and there's already like things like the IRA in not not our not our Irish one unfortunately uh, or, or fortunately depending on how you look at it um, it's the Internet Research Agency in St Petersburg which is basically a Russian troll factory where they are paid to go out there and spread disinformation. No longer do you have to buy a journalist or buy a newspaper; you can just manufacture it on the fly. And often, and this goes back to the point we made earlier, they often do it on they play both sides. So I was over in America during the 2016 election doing some work there. And one of the things that we found out after when the investigations came out about disinformation in it is that Russian uh, special forces would often play both sides. So, of course, they were doing the Trump stuff and all that kind of MAGA stuff. But what they were also doing is they were supporting a Democratic super left never Hillary narrative. Some remember the Bernie bros or the never Hillary movement. Yeah. We now know that was highly, highly, highly infiltrated and influenced by by Russia. And also, again, I deal with disinformation a lot. At the beginning of the pandemic, we had this massive fear about 5G. People are, yeah. 5G is causing COVID. Now, that is so outlandish. I don't even know where to start with that. But we know now, because I've been doing work with the New York Times on this before, that that was a lot of Russian disinformation. You might go, why do they spread all this disinformation? Because it engenders distrust. Because it splits and factionates. It, it exaggerates existing... Uh, fissures and cracks already in society if you can make your enemy fight with themselves and make them divided uh, it's very easy for you to do things without being you know without an eye being kept on you or to do your own actions while they're all distracted so actually it's been something that's been at the uh, the forefront of 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 covert intelligence for a very long time perhaps in the business world too i'm more familiar with it in politics but i wouldn't be surprised if it plays around the table yeah, I'm sure. And, you know, and this brings us to that fragmentation that you mentioned in the book and other different biases that we might have and heuristics towards cognitive shortcuts that we might have. So there's, there's ones that are springing to mind, like confirmation bias, availability, heuristic, you know, um, cognitive dissonance. Am I correct in saying they're the kind of terms that you've you know, been referring to loosely? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can I can define them a little bit if that would be if handy. You can that'd be great because sure. I think this is really important to educate people in terms of what's actually happening, so we can call it. <clears throat> Absolutely. So, so give me the first one again, and I'll I'll, sp- I'll. So we'll talk about confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is 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 that I knew it, I knew it, I knew it sensation, right? So confirmation bias is when you have whether you know it or not a pre-existing uh, direction. Let's say now, William, you're lovely, but let's say I, I, I thought you were a horrible person or I just, you just, and someone came to me and gave me some negative information about you. Confirmation bias me going, yeah, I knew it. Yeah, that totally chimes, that tracks. It, instead of questioning that information and inter- going, is that really fair though? It would be doing that. And we all have a tendency to do it. We all amplify. So confirmation bias and in decision-making, it's toxic and it's fatal, the decision-making. Yeah. Because most things in real life are nuanced and have multifaceted things. Uh, again, I'm, I'm picking on you here in this example, but let's That's say, okay. let's okay. say I, I didn't like you, which I do like you, but let's say I did. Yeah. And someone came in and said negative information. But I, and I really analyzed that, yeah, look, I might not like the guy, but that's not true or that's not fair. Yeah. Right. That's how we should do that. But unfortunately, we have a tendency. And the way I would define it is, Confirmation bias is a tendency of humans to amplify narratives that suit their prejudice or downplay or diminish those that don't. We see it with climate change. Uh, it's a great example of it. So if I'm a hardcore libertarian in America who, who is, is total free market, anti, anti any regulation, climate change presents a bit of a problem for me uh, because I'd have to revisit the limits of my philosophy. So sometimes it's easier for them to say amplify narratives that, that downplay the existence of climate change uh, while you know dismissing or denigrating expert opinion on climate change, and we see it all the time. 
it happens in business it happens in real life it happens all the i say real life and business like they're separate things but you know it, it happens in our, our day-to-day life and everything it's really important to be aware of it because just because we want something to be true i think that's when you need to question something about twice as hard if it's what you what you'd expect or what you want to be true you need to interrogate it that little bit extra so you don't walk in to you know making a silly decision what was the next one on that list actually uh, the next one on the list and thank you for that uh, there is uh, we talked about confirmation bias is cognitive dissonance yeah <clears throat> excuse me so cognitive dissonance is an interesting thing uh, cognitive dissonance is that discomfort you get when you hold conflicting ideas or or your ideas are updating so the reason why it's important is Cognitive dissonance is unavoidable in the real world. How we deal with it is really important. So let's say I have a strongly held belief on something and William comes to me with a bit of information that totally upends my belief. It actually shows me to have been wrong or my philosophy to be misguided or maybe my decision-making up to now has been incorrect because I didn't have this bit of information. William brings it to me. I have two options. I get the feeling you get when everything's being turned off. That's cognitive dissonance. How you react to it is is twofold way. You can do um, the most beneficial way, but the most difficult way of dealing with that is to go, wow, I'm going to sit with that information, accept it, because you know William has shown me this is very reliable information in context. We've done all that kind of fact-checking. Um, all right, I need to accept this. And now I need to have a good long think about the approach I take and how I should update that and how I should future-proof it, right? That's what should happen. It's very hard. It's very important. Yeah. It's, it's not what tends to happen. What people tend to do is, uh, for example, I could shoot the messenger. I could dismiss uh, the information William gave me. Oh, I'm not listening to that. I could downplay that information. I could ignore that information because to get rid of that uncomfortable cognitive dissonance, I either have to really sit with it and wrestle philosophically and intellectually with, with the problem or I can stick my fingers in my ear and go, nah, 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 I can't hear you and ignore the problem till it goes away. And unfortunately, humans have a tendency to do the latter. It goes back into confirmation bias, too. We have, we have a tendency yeah. to cherry pick information that in a way that suits us. And unfortunately, as anyone who listens to your podcast, who obviously works in business, business world will know, that's going to lead you to suboptimal decisions. If you only take information that, uh, but it, it requires a massive human effort to realize it's okay to be wrong. There is a virtue in changing your mind when the evidence demands that you should. But the only uh, the only thing to be judged for, the only weakness, is if we refuse to change our mind when the evidence demands that we that we we ought to. And unfortunately, with cognitive dissonance, it's sometimes easier for people, particularly on things they're emotionally invested in to stick with a bad idea rather than take the harder intellectual path of refining their business idea or their plan or their philosophy for the optimum output, unfortunately. And often when I'm facilitating groups, I'm encouraging that growth mindset. So again, that's all embracing new ideas, being open to new ideas, being open to failure or learning from that. But there is an element about humility there, isn't there, as to say this and listen, I may be wrong here, which I think is kind of tough for leaders to admit. And yes. this is where you have Dominic Cummings kind of going, listen, I know I was wrong. <laughs> you know, and it's coming across bad because it's coming down, this is just revenge, Dominic. It's not humility. And I think yeah, that's... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Much, you know, There's a level of that, all right. Yeah. Because yeah. you're right, humility. And look, we've been brought up in a society which has always told us implicitly, if not explicitly, that, uh, you know... We always admire the guy that the John Wayne character sticks to his guns, you know, uh, you know, unwavering. I mean, in Julius Caesar, the, the Shakespeare play, he says, I'm infer- as firm and unwavering as the Northern Star. Uh, and that's like, it's always implied when a politician changes their mind, we accuse them of flip-flopping. You know, yeah. we actually, we have a negative weighting towards changing your mind. Uh, we shouldn't. Changing one's mind is a virtue. Like we should be a little bit promiscuous with our ideas and then select the best ones, you know, but unfortunately we, we have a tendency to reward this uh, a bullheaded one directional kind of thing. And that's unfortunately, I, I think you point out a leadership skill is the, the humility some way, but also the, the foresight to realize that changing your mind 
is what's going to benefit everyone the most. Also, the really important thing to realize is we never actually change our own, but no one else changes your mind for you. We can give people the tools and opportunities to change their own mind, but also the freedom to, to do that. And part of that freedom is to not ostracize, to not, uh, to not denigrate people for changing their mind. We should be encouraging that more. Like we're not, we don't want to end up in the social media world where we all get on a hill. And even when we realize halfway through the fight that we're on the wrong hill, or maybe the hill has a different shape, that we're still going to die on it. We don't want that. Uh, we don't want that in, in, in you know, our personal decisions. We don't want that in our business decisions. It's not ideal. So I think you're right. I think a good leader can say, oh, I made a balls of that. Look, we're going to do this differently because the, the, the information there tells us that we should. Um, I think it is an autocratic and poor leader who will go, well, even if it's wrong, we'll do it again. You know? And this brings us to the point where gender balance is really important in terms of leadership then because that toxic masculinity might be at place there. It's kind of funny that you mentioned that, John Wayne, you know, there's that whole notion of stick to your guns. It's all part, you know, uh, of the linguistics that we have. And, and again, it's ironic then, John Wayne's real name was Marilyn. <laughs> that is, I, you know what? I hadn't thought of that, but I, I, I do, I do see the, the, I, and you're right when it comes to gender balance and things like that. It's, it's to make sure if you have a team, obviously, um, they, they have, they're there because they're talented. Mm. What you don't want to do is have the most dominant voices shaping everything, right? Because the most yeah. dominant voices are not always right. They're sometimes extreme because yeah. you know opinionated people, and I, I happen to be one tends to so now i've gotten a little bit more uh, humble in my older age but like you know opinion particularly men and let's face it is particularly men yeah. can yeah. often like you know like the sound of their own voice a little bit so i think good leadership when you have a team is to not be led by that bias which is like the volume bias i suppose it's to say all right okay yeah you haven't said anything but i can see you're thinking about this what are your it, it, it's kind of using the full talents of your team and some of that is is cutting through the noise the loudest noise is not always representative of what everyone is thinking. If we have a team of 10 people and you have one absolute loudmouth on it, maybe two of them, and they, they agree with each other, it's very easy for everyone else to go, okay, that's the dominant position on this team. It might not be because the other eight people might be thinking something very, very different. So I guess one of the things of representation is to make sure that you're, you're using the full talents of your team as well. And you're giving everyone the opportunity who you've already picked for their skill and talent the opportunity to make sure they're heard and it's not just dominated by you know white men like you and me <laughs> yeah that pale male and stale because you know for me then leadership not only is it just decision making and being a, a a role model and you know empowering people and being you know a visionary leader it is about having that humility that maybe others know best you know that i'm utilizing the talents of my team and Again, it's looking out for that blind spot, if you want to call it that, like mansplaining, you know, yeah. that kind of I know best and stuff like that. So, again, in terms of that, like, you, you know, if you are opinionated, you're like, how do you avoid that mansplaining or all that stuff that goes on? Because because I can see this is what happens on social media is that, you know, we're going into polarization then again. So it is about being open, isn't it, to different thoughts yeah and, and about being curious it's about it's about accepting that you're probably never fully right it's about being a little bit um realizing that your opinions should be transient like if you still have the opinions at 20 or at 30 that you did at 20 or 40 that you did at 30 yeah. uh, on everything you haven't really either you got very lucky and were absolutely right the first time not likely or yeah. maybe you're not doing enough self-reflection. Now, I, I don't want that to sound kind of, uh, you know, airy-fairy, but a, a, a degree of self-reflection is important as well. And I think a great leader, like you, you point out there, anyone who can lead, delegation is so important. You have hired or you're leading those people because they are your team. They have skills that you don't. Otherwise, you do it yourself. And I, I find that, like, I've I because I work in, in, in academia and science, I've had bosses that are excellent excellent delegate who'll turn around to you said i hired you because you're really good so obviously i want you to yeah. i want you to to tell me how you do this even though they i would look up at the time i was i was young and i would have looked at that boss going he knows everything about this yeah. he was like no because you actually know a lot more about this than i do i'm i have a good overview 
of the thing, you have the technical skills or whatever else. I've also had bosses that have been a little bit, um, because they're very good, they want to do every part of a job, even the parts that maybe they, they don't see their own blind sites where they're not up to date on it or you know, they have a particular way of demanding it be done. And that actually is negative because the whole team then suffers for that. So good leadership is identifying people's talents and going, right, delegating them. You are excellent at this. I am leaving this to you. And you can, you know, uh, you know, not micromanaging the hell out of people. Um, yeah. No one wants to be micromanaged, particularly to competent people. It's going to engender bad feelings. So don't do that, you know. Yeah. When I teach leadership, then I talk about, you know, critical thinking is a crucial part of having effective followers, because how can you empower people and delegate to people without this critical thinking, which is really important. And this is what you, which I, I want to applaud you for keep saying is the need for self-reflection. I think this is the, it's it quite absent sometimes because we're such in that doing mode of that task mode that we don't get that time to move away from that operator mode into more leader mode or strategic mode. How do we actually think and reflect of what are my decisions? What are my thoughts? What are my behaviors? What are, what's contributing to that? What is that information? Whether that's a self-narrative or the information I'm receiving from others. And this is where we need to have a healthy skepticism in terms of that information. And there's a wonderful point that you made is about that information hygiene. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and I, I think it is. It is hard, but we, we we get so caught up in, as Shakespeare would say, the hurly burly, that um we we often do neglect that. We're almost in crisis management mode all the time, and it's hard to be self reflective when you feel like you're putting out fires all the damn time. So, um, but it doesn't necessarily have to be this labored process where like, this is my self reflection time. It's it's constantly. So if if you want to put it in really nerdy terms, it's constantly doing a Bayesian inference. As the information comes in, you constantly kind of go, all right, we did this last time this way. What worked and what didn't work? That worked. Or, you know, or I got this team member who's got this untapped potential. They're really good. I'm going to work out, you know, what their real strengths are. I'm going to talk to them a bit more. Um, Because you're constantly trying to make sure for next time you do it better, even if you did it really well last time. Um, and, And also when you go horribly wrong, you're like, okay. Let's do a critical path failure analysis on this. Why did it go horrifically wrong? Uh, I've been doing some some workshops with people recently where we kind of do that. We like go through a disaster and like, okay, how many steps went wrong? And then we go, how could they be avoided? But what you need to do and be very careful, particularly if you're a team leader, is not to assign blame necessarily. Mm. Because mo- like even if the failure was on point X, it's not necessarily neglect that causes failure sometimes it's a failure because you you didn't have adequate information or because you pivoted on an assumption that wasn't correct about consumer behavior or about uh, some delivery of some part or whatever else you need there's a lot of different reasons for things going wrong in a, in as engineers call failure analysis but yeah. they're not always it's very easy to go and personalize it and go you're incompetent to someone yeah but often that's not the case so it has to be seen in, in that light as well. We have to be very careful not to ascribe blame where blame may not necessarily uh, be ascribed to. Because people also, we're human. If someone has messed up a little bit and they have the ability to be aware of it, they're going to, you know, they need to be gently encouraged. Like, we all screw up. We all do. So a good leader dealing with that, I've, I've seen both. I've, 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 and, I've, and I guess these days I try to be that for my own team. But like, it is an interesting thing. I've seen the the reflective way of handling that, which is beneficial for everyone, and I've seen the autocratic finger pointing way, which doesn't help anyone. Uh, you know, it might make someone feel better for ten seconds, but it engenders such a bad feeling that it ultimately is damaging the next time. So, yeah, definitely, I have an awareness of that now from being on both sides. But yeah, yeah, thanks for sharing those learnings there. So it's a bit like, you know, when a leader has so much power, they, they can feel like infallible in some way. If we're blaming others, then there's a, an amygdala hijack then, isn't it? We get emotional. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and look, emotions aren't necessarily a bad thing. But what you always have to do with emotions is ask yourself, why am I feeling this way? Like, for example, and, it, and by the way, in my personal life in anyone's personal life I, I really if you're having a row with your significant other sometimes it's really good to take a little breather in your head and go hang on 
Am I really angry about that? Or am I upset about something that happened three weeks ago and I'm now taking this out? You know, like it's constantly checking yourself um, before you, because it's very uh, cathartic to jump into anger or upset or, or, or annoyance. But sometimes it's, it's, it's really not the right thing to do. In fact, as I get older, I think it's, it's, it's more and more rarely the right thing to do. And even when you are angry about something, say an injustice or something terrible has happened, yeah. uh, outright anger is often the worst thing you can do. You need to channel that into some productive solution. Um, I, I think anger is very human, but it's not a very useful emotion unless you direct it into something productive. Otherwise, if you direct it at a person, it's, it's just negative. It's not going to do anything good. Exactly. And, and this is how we need to check our behavior, a bit like our social media behavior at that. Like, because, again, going back to that fact that you shared in the book and a quote from your book as well, that, you know, 59% of articles are not read, you know, and I can see how that happens. Like, with that become the social kudos without the intellectual exertion. I love that quote from that book. It's, it's work, isn't it? It's work to actually check your behaviors, check yourself. It, it's, it also takes away your comfort zone. Like I, I look at my, I mean, I'm, I'm in my mid-30s now, and I look at myself in my mid-20s and all the stuff I thought I knew and how strongly opinionated, and now I realize, oh, no, no, it's far more nuanced. And I, I look back at that prototype version of myself, learning that stuff, and go, actually, there's, there, 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 the exertion, the thing about uh, learning about things is you often go from having a very black and white perspective to having an immensely shaded perspective yeah. where I'm like look on average that's good or bad and I, I mean I'm not an essentialist in any way when I, I another one I give my students sometimes is we talk about is something good or bad I say is radiation exposure good or bad and my yeah. students generally go it's terrible and I go what if you have cancer and you're getting treatment for a uh, for, for a tumor and they're like oh yeah. well, then it's good I'm like that's the problem good and bad are essentialistic traits you can't describe them to people you can't describe them to even situations because it's yeah. all about the, it, it, there's too many layers to unpack. And that could be, there is an intellectual exertion in that. There is a little bit of a, you know, it's, but it, from a business perspective, it's, it's seeing, for example, in a crisis opportunity, uh, things can be oh, broadly good or bad, but that word itself is misleading because it depends on the perspective you're taking and what you're trying to achieve from it. Uh, everything is in a very philosophical sense, things just are the meaning we ascribe to them well that's uh, that's our that's reflective of our own stance yeah. and and philosophy and i think it's very important to be cognizant of the fact that there are different angles that can be viewed from and there's often information that changes our perception of an event an event we see once as oh that's that was great you might look yeah. back in retrospect and go oh that wasn't so good actually because now i know this vice versa happens all the time no problem i think we have to embrace that i think that's actually nice it's just unusual for us to do that. Yeah, and, and and speaking of unusual and unusual decisions, and sometimes we're in crisis mode, then we're kind of forced into a decision. So you were talking earlier on before that we started recording then about, is, was it something you're doing for the British Medical Journal on AstraZeneca in terms of was it a good idea to pull it or not? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because that yeah. translates into business, I think, as well. So, absolutely. So it was actually, it's, it's a longer discussion of the precautionary principle, which is often invoked in, um, I'm not sure, is it invoked in business very often? I, it's, it's, it's invoked in politics all the time. And it's based on, um, and the reason why this is relevant is um, AstraZeneca obviously have a highly effective vaccine against COVID-19, which has been killing a lot of people. <laughs> and the downside of that is there seems to be an association, albeit a very rare one, with certain types of blood clots. Um, and the association appears, it's, it's rare, but it's strong. So there was a reaction across Europe. The, the EMA, yeah. the European Medicines Agency, they pointed out that the benefits outweighed the risks. But a lot of countries, including Denmark, for example, suspended the vaccine and continue to suspend it. It's not unsuspended there. And there's an argument, well, did they do the right thing? They picked up a potential danger signal, right? Did they, I would argue that it was a poor choice. And I'd argue it was a poor choice for two reasons. The first one of which now, uh, the first one of which is they, they, used, they invoked the precautionary principle, but the problem with the precautionary principle, or at least strong interpretations of the precautionary principle, 
is it does not allow for risk balancing, right? It actually paralyzes you a little bit. Cass Sunstein famously said, the economist famously said, it's, it's a paralyzing principle. For example, your car seatbelt may decapitate you in an accident. It's far, far, far more likely to save your life. Um, if we if we really invoke the, this, the strong version of the precautionary principle, we'd be do dodgy about seatbelts because it's a, an intervention that might kill us. But yeah. we have to look at risk balance. It's going to save our lives. Vaccines are very similar. The vaccine is saving a hell of a lot of lives. We're already seeing that in countries that have high vaccine uptake, that their COVID deaths and their instances are going straight down. Um, so what you have to do is balance the two of them. That's not easy to do. It requires some nuanced statistics, which I like doing. So that's why <laughs> that's why I'm doing that. But it's yeah. it's not everyone's uh, it's not everyone's forte, obviously. But that's really, everything has to be balanced. Very few things in isolation. If something in isolation is not any use to us. We have to look at okay, yeah, this has a potential risk. What's the potential benefit? I imagine in business that's very instantly applicable because everything you do is uh, is balancing a risk and benefit. Unfortunately, I think in this case, a lot of European regulators jumped the gun. Now, that was the one bad thing. So they didn't do the risk benefit. The second bad thing is the law of unintended consequences. Yeah. Right? Now, a lot of my work is on vaccine hesitancy. People who are afraid of vaccination, people who have been exposed to disinformation on vaccination. Yeah. And my particular area of research on that is HPV, but it goes for all vaccination. Yeah. Um, people are already a bit afraid and don't understand vaccination very well. Now, after mm. clean water, there's nothing that has saved more lives in human history than vaccination. It's incredible. Yeah. We now have a, a series of very effective vaccines for a quite a deadly disease, mm. which should be cause for celebration. But the unintended consequence is the impressions that are left. If countries have suspended the vaccine, if there is still an aura of distrust or mistrust around it, it is going to make people far more vaccine hesitant and it plays into the hand of, uh, hands of anti-vaccine activists who during the entire pandemic have been particularly active. It plays into their uh, oh, the harm narrative they're always trying to sell. So while it was well-intentioned from a governmental point of view, say by Denmark, yeah. the actual ramifications of it are probably going to be negative for them. Had they said, hey, we've picked up a safety signal. It's very, very low. It's much lower than the damage the disease can do. We're going to keep an eye on this. Um, if we're going to update, and, and if they'd been that transparent, I think that would be a much better thing, instead of outright suspension. Because even if they reverse that, some of the countries that have reversed it, there's still a, a distrust about it. In France, for example, where they reversed the suspension, um, people are now still scared of the vaccine and won't get it. So you delay the pandemic, and those people are now still at risk of getting COVID or dying of COVID. So you have unnecessary deaths that, that could have been avoided. Everything is risk balance in life. There is nothing in life that is risk free, but we have to make decisions based towards the best possible evidence and update our views as things go along. So speaking of decision making then, because I wanted to, to talk about um, that availability uh, heuristic and even going back to Boris Johnson and Donald Trump, I really like to quote from your book again, and I see a laugh in there uh, when I mentioned those two names, is that quote from Voltaire. Those who make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. So again, in terms of that, it's a bit like in business then, is we need to be careful who you listen to. And I've had that on, on previous podcasts. So can you tell me a little bit more about that availability heuristic? Yeah, so availability heuristic is our human tendency to um, <clears throat> ascribe more value to claims we hear repeated or uh, the most recent information what is most mentally available to us, right? So uh, a good example is say, well, we just talked about vaccination there. Uh, even though the, the overwhelming scientific consensus and medical consensus is vaccination is life-saving and safe, online disinformation vaccination is much more commonly encountered. And that tends to stick in people's mind because A, repetition, repetition, repetition. It doesn't matter that it's, it's, it's obviously false. It's that you're very exposed to it. So you start weighing it higher. And the other thing is, it's emotionally um, striking. It always tells you a danger, harm, scary. You know, it's negative information. And humans have a predilection towards negative information over positive information. So that makes it more readily available and therefore biases us towards it. That is a very good survival thing. If I keep hearing, if William tells me, as I, I saw this great movie, and five people tell me the movie was great, 
it's good to have that availability because I'll go, I might go and see that movie, right? Yeah. But however, it's a really bad metric for making hard decisions on things because you're biased by the kind of availability you're exposed to, the kind of you know social media accounts you follow or the newspapers you read. Uh, you're not necessarily getting that objectively. It's being strained through things. And often if it's emotive and scary, you're far more likely to remember it. So absolutely. I mean, and the reason why that's, really frightening is if you get on board with that this availability heuristic the other related phenomenon is illusory truth and this is that repeated exposure to a falsehood even if we know it to be false on an intellectual level makes us more subconsciously ready to accept it um it, it's quite terrifying you think that it's like hacking our own uh, psychological systems it's and everyone by the way is vulnerable to this like you know um I mean, it, it, it's crazy. I mean, I, I know, for example, that drinking eight glasses of water a day is, is a myth. I know it's not true. However, I'm so exposed to it for so long that I still treat it like it's a fact, even though I know it's not true. <clears throat> it's, it's no medical or scientific basis to it, yet I still do, because we're all prone to this. Um, I just have to stop myself and go, hang on now, you've just said that, and it feels like a fact, but it's not a fact. Stop treating it like a fact. And that's the internal checking you do. And, and th it's hard to do, but I mean, I have to catch myself a lot. So I'm like, oh, hang on a sec. That's not true. You just want that to be true. Stop. You know? And speaking of things that's not true, then it was at this thing that was going around before Steve Jobs doing alternative cancer treatment uh, there, you know, so we, and that's disinformation and you're talking about medical scientific basis thing. Like, have you, did you hear, hear that one? Yeah. Yeah. So Steve Jobs had a pancreatic cancer is not a great cancer at all. It's, 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 yeah. um, it's one of the most negative types, but he had um, a very unique type of it that's quite rare and has quite good survivability. If you follow, you know, best evidence, best, best medical based practice and then medical scientific practice jobs elected to go on a series of juicing diets and, and, and very popular, very trendy, things in the environment in which he lived in he was living out in california i think at the time and this yeah. is very hipster very cool very it, it seems good like it's it's they're telling you it has all the benefits none of the side effects now that's your first alarm bell okay yeah because when you take something like cancer cancer is the is the abnormal division of cells in a particular type doing things they shouldn't be doing going into areas they shouldn't be and messing yeah. up with the function of that tissue right so the way we treat that by standard is trying to stop those cells or kill them off. So if yeah. someone tells you, hey, you can juice your way out of this and there's no side effects, you're like, no, there should be side effects because you're killing off cells. That's always going to have side effects. Like, I mean, yeah. it, it means it's working if it has a side effect. And Jobs went for this because firstly, I think availability heuristic, he was surrounded by people telling him this would work for him. Uh, and, and cancer patients often are, they're very vulnerable to disinformation for that reason. And secondly, I think he had his own biases where he um, he thought he knew more than everyone else. He it, When you've been told for many, many years that you're a super genius, maybe that does yeah. that to you a little bit. Uh, yeah. Do not surround yourself with yes men. It's never a good idea or yes women. Um, but jobs elected for alternative treatments. And by the time he realized they weren't working and that he was getting more seriously ill, it, he was beyond help. And it's unfortunate Jobs could have lived a much longer, much healthier life um, had he followed best evidence, had he followed um, the advice of experts. And there is a tendency that that's, we, we learn a lesson there that, you know, firstly, you have to identify proper expertise. The proper experts were the oncologists and the surgeons and the, the doctors who were trying to give him the advice. The improper expertise was the gurus and the wellness experts who were selling them snake oil. And unfortunately, Jobs made a really bad decision there. And this is why I always say this stuff is not just about, you know, making the best business decisions or the best decisions in your, in in, in some kind of transactional thing. It's it can affect life or death decisions, yeah. and I, being aware of that's really really important. I think so. Jobs was incredibly unfortunate that he was misguided in this, and it had uh, deadly ramifications for him. And this is what you need to sort of surround yourself with those people who will challenge you and you know be skeptical in terms of your decisions and then information hygiene who will tell you what you don't want to hear when you have to hear it like yeah it's very easy to 
And I mean, I, I get I get angry talking about that sometimes because again, I have to check my anger and channel something productive. But um, I get I deal with patient groups an awful lot, and I get so you would you would be surprised at the volume of disinformation that is given to patients who've just got a cancer diagnosis stuff and it kill, and i mean there's no this is not an exaggeration it kills patients because it often makes them delay their conventional treatment or reject it outright and by the time they have changed their mind it is sometimes too late to do anything where they could have like steve jobs he had a survivable cancer yeah if memory serves i think yeah he had a, he had a pancreatic and he had a small cell pancreatic i'm trying to think it's not really relevant but um yeah i mean th that's why i have a real problem with disinformation it can be life or death so it's not just about the politics we follow it's not just about the business decision we make it, it's sometimes about things that will keep us alive or loved ones alive and that's yeah. with vaccination that's with cancer that's with everything else mm -hmm. so it's really important to make sure we don't fall down the rabbit holes of of bad thinking and that's the whole purpose of this podcast is to shine a light on conversations we should be having and how you know social media seeps into the workplace and our our own decisions and you know for me you know you're talking about a key important point there is really being able to challenge people i get this feedback all the time that people get me to be their coach or their facilitator because they can challenge people back and say listen where is the evidence there for that thinking what is the thought process behind that and it's about checking yourself there so um and i'm conscious of your time here today uh robert i know you're going off to do uh, a talk soon so i want to give you an opportunity now to maybe give some key takeaways there and obviously you know you have your book all right and you're also <laughs> a consultant a bit like myself all right so i want to give you the opportunity there so first of all your key takeaways and thank you so much for this so by the way so your That's absolutely pleasure. Uh, yeah, brilliant. Uh, what are your key takeaways then for people? What should they to keep an eye on, especially in the workplace? I think the first thing we should always do is when we're trying to make decisions, and it's all about decision making, even if it's not obvious at the time, we're always uh, imbibing information to make decisions. The first thing we got to do is we got to practice a form of information hygiene. We got to be super careful with our sources. We got to check facts. We got to check context for those facts. We got to make sure we're getting a representative picture and not something someone is trying to sell to us that glosses over or distorts the reality of things. Uh, the other thing is when we're making decisions, the word dispassionate is often abused, but what we need to do is be aware of our emotions, be aware of how things make us feel, and then subject our own biases to a bit of critical examination. If we want something to be true and it seems to be true, maybe interrogate that a little bit harder than if we were given bad news, right? Because we have to be making the best possible decisions with the information we have. And that requires overcoming our own biases, which is hard to do. Mm -hmm. So the way to get around that sometimes is simply to question a little bit harder things that seem to work out the way you want them to, <laughs> because yeah. then you might find a mistake. Yeah, and, and obviously question everything, but particularly question that before you, you settle on things. Uh, the final point is to realize that it is a virtue to change your mind. It is a sign of great maturity and growth and, and leadership indeed, that if you can go, I had that wrong. No, I think we, yeah, I, now that I've thought about it, it is not uh, an, a black mark against anyone to grow and mature and change their mind. Uh, the only failing is if you refuse to change your mind when the evidence demands that you should. And that is detrimental to everyone, especially yourself um again i write a lot about this in the book the irrational ape um and I, I i tell it through stories because i don't think human like you can give all these little technical things but we're humans we respond to stories we learn through stories and i think that's why it's so full of stories i mean so as i kind of i went for um if people want to find me they can find me there i, I also do a lot of science, science and medicine consulting if anyone ever wants to know something about that that's just started so i'm kind of new at that but i i have a few clients now and it's it's interesting to see it from the point of view of non-academics i'm dealing with business people and media people now who need answers to questions and i'm like wow you need this and you don't have 16 weeks to wait for it and a grant i have to get this to you tomorrow okay excellent so that's great as well um going well so far but uh, i haven't blown anything else up 
uh, I keep forgetting to bill people, but I shouldn't probably advertise that. That is something I need to get better at doing. Um, yeah, I mean, should I give context as well? I, if, if you want to find yeah, me on social media do. for yeah. all the for all the dangers of social media, uh, you'll find me at Twitter at, at DRG1985. On Instagram, I'm David underscore Robert underscore Grimes. And on uh, LinkedIn, I have a page. I don't know the address of it, but I, as, as William will tell you, I'm terrible at, at that particular medium, but I am getting better. And the website is www.davidrobertgrimes.com. You can contact me through that, no problems. And for our American, North American listeners as well. Oh yes, uh, I should mention that. <laughs> Your book, yeah, if you might do that. Yes, I should point out, in North America, the book's just been released, and it has a different title, and I have to grab it. It's Good Thinking. The subtitle is... Uh, Why wife... Flawed Logic Puts Us All at Risk and How Critical Thinking Can Save the World. I've done yes. my research, David. You have, you've done, the weird thing is I have to check my own subtitles because they've changed in the different editions. Uh, but yeah, that's just been released by the Experiment Publishing, and you can pick that up if you're in North America, Canada, Mexico, anywhere that you'd like to. Uh, if you're in Europe, it's the Irrational Ape. But uh, someone asked some, someone asked me, why are the titles different? And I said, well, firstly, marketing research told the, the team that it should be different. And secondly, in America, 43% uh, of the country don't believe in evolution. So it would have been a harder sell to point out that we are apes and irrational. That might have been a bridge too far. So <laughs> hopefully people enjoy anyway. I'm sure they will. And people have definitely enjoyed this podcast. I know I have. David, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, my pleasure, William. And, and anytime. That's it for this episode of the Workplace Podcast. My special thanks to this week's guest for a wonderful discussion. If you want to get in contact with a podcast about a workplace topic or a particular challenge that you're facing, contact me via Twitter at Different Paths. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, William Corless, C-O-R-L-E-S-S, -S, or go to my website, www.yellowwood.ie. Yellowwood, your external learning and development partner. Provider executive coaching, facilitation, and training. Take a different path to success with your career, leadership, team, and organization.